0: One thing optometry has been missing is a unified message that explains the importance of eye care. Now OYE Broadcasting has solved that dilemma. We are very excited to announce the first subscription-based monthly content delivery service that will not only enhance and expand your practice, but elevate the industry. Please visit oyebroadcasting.com and sign up today. That's oyebroadcasting.com. With more screen usage and indoor time, Hello, and welcome to the Open Your Eyes podcast. I'm Dr. Kerry Gelb, the host of the documentary, Open Your Eyes. Please visit the film's website at OpenYourEyes2020.com, featuring interviews with more than 50 optometrists from around the country, sharing information on eye care and eye disease. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews. Also, please leave comments. Glaucoma is a blinding but preventable group of diseases that cause damage to the optic nerve. Treating glaucoma successfully is a team effort between patient and doctor. Today's guest, Director of Optometric Services at Baskin-Palmer Eye Institute, University of Miami Health System, Optometric Physician, Dr. Mark Dunbar. Dr. Dunbar is a fellow of the American Academy of Optometry and is a founding member of both the Optometric Glaucoma Society and the Optometric Retinal Society. Dr. Dunbar, thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Carrie. It's great to be here.
0: I know we've uh,
1: been looking at trying to do this for a while, so I'm glad it's kind of finally worked out.
0: It's great to be talking with one of the optometric all-stars. So uh, I know you have a lot to offer and to offer our our audience, and we have a lot of people in our audience who uh, are are not in the vision community, but are very interested in what we do. Probably about 20,000 people will watch this once we show it the first week or two. So let me ask you, what's new in glaucoma?
1: What's new in glaucoma? That's a loaded question, right? Um, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot. Obviously, we're, we're in an era of, of technology. Um, so when you look at innovation, um, there's, there's new drugs. Um, there's technology in terms of being able to diagnose uh, or recognize glaucoma earlier is, is, is now here. Uh, just understanding fundamental principles. You know, why does glaucoma develop? Is it just related to intraocular pressure or... You know are there other variables in, involved in in the diagnosis uh and and ideology um, obviously, genetics is a hot topic and and I think we're really kind of scratching the surface on on kind of understanding what are the genetic links, unlike macular degeneration where we really got kind of the genetics mapped out pretty good uh in terms of understanding pathophysiology. We know that that glaucoma is is really a very much a heterogenetic disease or probably several or lots of different genes that, that predispose an individual from getting glaucoma. And again, I hope we don't talk about that because I don't, I don't know much about the genetics other than it is kind of complex. And I think we're a little behind compared to other areas. So,
0: so somebody who's been treating glaucoma for many years or involved in the treatment of glaucoma, what has surprised you about treating glaucoma and glaucoma patients? Every once in a while, something, you know, there's a eureka moment or something that may surprise you. I'll give you an example for myself. You know, we were taught in school that, and excuse my New York accent, but we were taught in school uh, that glaucoma, you know, open-angle glaucoma, and we'll talk about the different types, really has no symptoms and no pain. But I have found patients with glaucoma, open-angle glaucoma, that do have pain. Uh, it's not very common, but it does happen. What has surprised you over the years, and what have you really learned and, and, and that you really bring into it when you're, you're, you're examining a patient that may have glaucoma?
1: Well, you know, I think, first of all, the, the technology, the advances in technology has, has really helped us. So you and I are fairly close, right? So I remember when, when we graduated and started practicing in the 80s and into the 90s. Um, you know, you, you really had, um, you know, looking at a nerve, checking a pressure, and, and, and obviously doing threshold visual fields. But, you know, at that time, threshold visual fields were, were very difficult to do. They were long, you know, it required a, a patient to be able to perform the test, um, you know, and, and be accurate at doing the tests. And we know that was not an easy option or easy task for patients to do. And so I think it was just difficulty sometimes being able to make a diagnosis of glaucoma, because as you know, it's complex. You can have somebody with elevated pressure who doesn't have glaucoma, has normal optic nerves. Of course, we call that ocular hypertension. And then, you know, you can have somebody with a normal pressure, quote normal, because typically we kind of consider the normal range anywhere between 10 and 21. So, So you could have somebody at maybe a pressure of 15 or 16, and it can look like they've got very bad glaucoma. So and then you have really everything in between: some suspicious nerves, um, a threshold, or a borderline pressure. And 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 you would see these patients, and and you were, you know, they're sitting in your chair. You're kind of feel the pressure to make a decision: is this glaucoma? Do I need to treat it? And 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 a lot of times, you know, that was not easy to be able to do. And then for the patient who had glaucoma, trying to follow them over time and 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 make a decision: gosh, is this patient progressing? So. So looking longitudinally at visual fields when the patient wasn't great at doing visual fields, and we know that fields are prone to to long-term fluctuations, meaning, you know, sometimes they do well on the field. There's days where, you know, they don't do well. And and again, you're trying to put all that information together and making a decision. And and I think it was really never easy to do. And and for that reason, I think there was probably a lot of intimidation. Many ODs would would send those patients to an ophthalmologist or glaucoma specialist just because, you know, they didn't want that responsibility. So so fast forward to where we are today, right? Where we've got better visual field algorithms. They're quick, they're highly sensitive, um, easier for patients to do. And then you've got OCT imaging, which, which again provides an objective means besides doing a visual field of helping determine, is this nerve abnormal? Um, is this patient progressing? And again, not just looking at a visual field, but looking at Objective longitudinal information from an OCT. So, so for me, you know, when, you know, what what's kind of been the epiphany, it's just, you know, the the marriage of technology and and really just embracing, you know, having these patients in your chair and and being able to really, you know, as an optometrist, provide the same level of care and service that that an ophthalmologist or a glaucoma specialist would, right? Because they don't have any different information than you have they're looking at the same data they're looking at an OCT a visual field an optic nerve and, and so i think it does give you confidence so when you're making those decisions is it glaucoma do i need to start treating or is this patient getting worse you're you know you're it, it's leveled the playing field um, and and i think that's allowed optometry to more ODs to follow glaucoma treat glaucoma um, and so that's been the fun and you know when i'm in my lectures we were just at Vision Expo this weekend and and you know, we were doing some glaucoma stuff. And, and that was really one of the discussions. How great is it that we have this technology that we're, we're able to make educated decisions? Is this patient getting worse? Is this glaucoma? And again, even with the technology, it's not you know one or two visits. I mean, I showed a great case of a patient who I've been following for 10 plus years, who's got really suspicious optic nerves, a family history of glaucoma, and and, and again, the OCT imaging, because they're abnormal to begin with, wasn't a lot of help. So it took a long time to be able to kind of make a decision, is it glaucoma or is it not? So, so again, I think it's part of a, you know your practice that I would really encourage all optometrists to, to embrace and, and really have fun with.
0: You know, when you look at the studies, about 40% of the people that are treated for glaucoma actually go blind in one eye, even though they're being treated, But I believe those studies are old, because if you look at the current treatment of glaucoma now, because of what you're saying, we're able to diagnose glaucoma much earlier, just like with any disease. The earlier diagnosis of disease, the better, and the better the outcome. So that's why it's so important that patients are getting their eyes examined and that they're being checked to see if they're at risk for glaucoma. But early treatment is really the key to preventing blindness and i think that 40% statistic that you will go blind in one eye if you have glaucoma no longer really applies because we're finding glaucoma so much earlier with this great technology that we have
1: correct no i think that's that's absolutely right and and i don't know how accurate those numbers are either um what i tell my patients and what i tell you know when i'm lecturing to to colleagues on the podium when patients get into trouble so when you're looking at those patients who who are going blind or lose significant vision loss, it's it's really one of two reasons. It's it's one, it was diagnosed very late. So to your point, Carrie, patients for whatever reason aren't coming in. So you think of the the you know the the who sees well. They're relying on over the counter readers and they don't really understand the reason why they need to come in to get an eye exam. And so you know those patients who think they're doing well or you know they've got a pair of glasses that have worked for years. And and so when they come in they've already got advanced disease. And so that's, that becomes more difficult to your point as the more advanced the disease is, it gets harder, it gets harder to be able to effectively manage. And, and again, sometimes you require surgery, laser, and those type of things. And then the second group is, is, you know, the patients who just don't comply. They, you know, this is the same probably group of people who, not the same, but you know, they, we, we see patients who have poorly controlled blood pressure, patients with diabetes who don't control their blood sugar and, and again, it's just, you know, poor recognition of a problem because to your point, glaucoma for the most part is asymptomatic and, and until it's very advanced and robs your, your central vision, many patients are unaware. And so, you know, they see their eye care provider and are told they have a disease and, and they have to, you know, it's like <laughs> believing in a higher God. It's faith, right? Do I trust and believe this is to be true and that I'm going to have to take an eye drop when I feel perfectly fine, my vision is perfectly fine why, why do I need to take a drop right so so when patients lose you know have trouble it's it's compliance and so then it goes back to you know the job of the eye care provider of, of helping patients so they understand their disease and really the importance of why we're taking this drop and and so whether it's showing pictures letting them see their visual field etc and and again I, that's why I think optometry is is uniquely qualified to handle it because you know we're not like a, a, a glaucoma surgeon who who may have 50, 60, 70 plus patients in, you know, in, in a day. And, and how can they really dedicate the kind of time that sometimes some patients need to, to, to be told about a disease that, you know, and that's the difficulty. So I think I think the one thing optometrist does really well is, is we spend time. We understand our patients. Many times we've, you know, we've we followed them or their family members for for years. And so we we do often have that inherent trust and and have the ability to really help explain. And, and again, sometimes it's, you know, it takes a couple of visits and, and saying it a, a few different ways for patients to really finally kind of get it and understand, you know, that they've got a, a disease that requires lifelong, you know, treatment.
0: And there's about 3 million people that have glaucoma and another 3 million that don't know that they have glaucoma. And, there's a lot of people who are at risk for glaucoma. They'll come in. Their pressure is borderline, and they have to be followed. So glaucoma is, and glaucoma is the the third leading cause of blindness worldwide, but the number one leading cause of blind, preventable blindness worldwide. So glaucoma is, is 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 a very elusive condition, and it's not something that you could be examined for by telemedicine.
1: Well, correct. You're you're right. You know, and, and you know, I did, I realized I didn't answer your question about you know pain, right? So to your point, many patients with glaucoma are asymptomatic; don't have any pain. And the only time they will have pain is if you know, because because we always get, you know, we, we all can relate to this, right? The patient who comes in and says, "I I feel like there's a pressure in my eye," and 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 we don't we kind of try to figure out, well, what does that mean? Because you measure the pressure in the eye, and it's normal. And so, is there a direct relationship or correlation to this boy I feel like pressure in my eye and, and typically not I, I often kind of attribute that to, to maybe dry eye or just non-specific inflammation but but you're right I mean you can have very high pressure and and not have any pain or any symptoms so so you're right it becomes difficult to to, to, to how do you make a diagnosis and, and if we're using a pr- checking a pressure which may be normal and we know that, maybe a third or or 40% of patients can have glaucoma at a normal pressure and then looking at an optic nerve and trying to put those two things together. And, 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 and we know that there's a a large variation of normal among different populations. The African-American populations can have bigger nerves and bigger cups. And, and so unless you look at them, so to your point, Kerry, I mean, how do you, how do you make that diagnosis via, via telemedicine format? And and I, I don't think you can. I mean, you know, that's a technology that at Baskin Palmer, we're doing a lot with. Um, we're exploring a lot of different ways to utilize telemedicine. So ways patients don't have to come in the office, but, and and, and we are actually exploring how to do that in, in a glaucoma setting. So, but that, <coughs> excuse me, that's maybe a patient who thinks they have glaucoma, they're calling up saying, you know, I I, I was told I have glaucoma. And so how, how we're handling that is we may kind of develop a, a, an image at a, telemedicine imaging program, if you will. So patients may come on a Saturday or at a time where the clinic is less busy, get all their imaging done. They get an OCT, they get a visual field, maybe they get a pressure check by a technician before they ever come and see an eye care provider, see the eye doctor, and then you can maybe connect remotely looking at all the data. And, and, and that would be probably the only way in a telemedicine format that you could, you know, make a diagnosis or, or really see that a patient has a suspicion of glaucoma.
0: And there'll be a day where a patient will be able to wear a contact lens that will take their eye pressure. Well,
1: exactly, and and, and that actually exists, right? Uh, um, we're we're there, you know, and and even OCTs, right? Notel is a is a is an Israeli company that has developed a, a take-home OCT device. I mean, you think about that, right? And it's small enough that patients can take it home, and and that's used mainly to follow patients with macular degeneration and probably. Uh, diabetic retinopathy, but but it's just you know it speaks to technology and innovations in technology where yeah you'll you'll be able to measure a pressure remotely or or you know they'll be able to take an OCT home and 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 boy and and I I, I hate to bring this up but but I will just because we're talking about glaucoma I was at Vision Expo and and one of the companies what that was there is a company called Hero H E R U now. They have a using the, the kind of the Oculus type device, this this um, virtual, you know, reality type. So they've developed this very sensitive and sophisticated a visual field machine. So no longer are you going to have to, you know, go into an office and this device that takes up a lot of space, like an egg, you'll be able to even in a waiting room or maybe even send it to a patient where a really highly sensitive and specific device that will perform a visual field in a matter of minutes um, and 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 again, you know, much easier for patients to do, you know, really kind of changes the game from how you and I, and even today our patients are doing visual fields. And and again, this is just one of the companies. And and, and let me just kind of qualify that this is developed at Bascom Palmer, and I'm part of Bascom Palmer, so I'm not trying to sell it or tell you theirs is any better. I just happened to see them at Vision Expo West and was surprised how far along the technology has gone. But as I said, there's others where you know, yeah, these will be able to, you know, send patients information, you know, or or things to be able, whether it's an OCT or a visual field. So they will be able to kind of do some of these tasks remotely, not in an office. Um, And I think that would be a big help, again, especially maybe more relevant to busy academic referral or ophthalmology, you know, centers where you've got large volumes of patients.
0: You know doing visual fields on an ipad or vr i mean there's a number of companies working on it they're doing working at stanford and all eyes has one and you have a you know the glaucoma researchers have been trying to figure out the cause of glaucoma for 100 years do do you have a do you have a preference at, at baskin palmer what do you guys think is the cause of glaucoma where, where do you guys lean
1: you know, we're we're still kind of meat and potatoes. I mean, like like everybody, right? You you, you check a pressure and and then you can't help but think, well, what does a pressure in, in you know the anterior chamber have to do with you know glaucomatous optic nerve damage? And so, you know, and it's been thrown around forever and ever. What are the causes? Is it perfusion pressure? And we've all seen the patient who's thin and frail and 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 is probably on a blood pressure medication and 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 what may happen is at night, they get these nocturnal blood pressure dips. And that combination with increased intraocular pressure, because we know pressure is highest right before you wake. And so it's that combination of low blood pressure, high intraocular pressure really kind of affects perfusion pressure. But but how do you measure that, right? We're, we're checking blood pressure on the arm. And again, the same thing, there's really no standardized method of, of looking at what perfusion pressure is. I, I think maybe even more relevant and this is work that, that John Berdahl has done John is is when he was a, I think a fellow at Mayo Clinic in, in Rochester he he looked at essentially gets down to cerebral spinal fluid pressure right because you look at the optic nerve and, and and cerebral spinal fluid or you know at the level of the lamina that may have the most influence so when he was at Mayo one of his studies was he looked at I think 10,000-plus patients who had lumbar punctures, and then of those 10,000, you looked at the number of patients who actually had eye exams, and then of those who had lumbar punctures and eye exam, which percentage had glaucoma, and what he was able to show was patients with glaucoma had low cerebral spinal fluid pressure, so it's kind of becomes a little bit of a physics problem, right? You have high intraocular pressure, so high pressure in the eye, low cerebral spinal fluid pressure, so near the laminates, that pressure in the eye that's causing damage because of low cerebral spinal fluid. He repeated the study. with with, uh, The first study had 20,000. The next 10,000, the next group, I think, had over 20,000 and really found essentially the same thing. So so again, whether it's perfusion pressure or low cerebral spinal fluid pressure, um, you know, I think, you know, or, you know, just your body's ability to Kind of adapt to various whether you're laying down or cold weather or, or you know whatever the facts is your ability to autoregulate but but I, I I think more and more data really is a link between you know probably low cerebral spinal fluid pressure and 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 that being maybe one of the main contributory causes so so one of the questions that again somebody who doesn't have high pressure glaucoma you you know did you have, have you ever had a cerebral spinal fluid leak have you ever had you know spinal surgery or or maybe some type of motor vehicle. You know, you start asking those questions, trying to maybe understand are there other things besides traditional intraocular pressure that that may play a role.
0: Now, one time it was big to look look at the the blood pressure, systolic, diastolic, if it was very low and there was a formula to see if you're at greater risk for glaucoma progressing, your glaucoma progressing. Are you still using that or would you say that's fallen out of favor?
1: No, I don't think it's fallen out of favor. Um, you know, I, you know, I think every kind of major population study have have really shown a a, a link, a strong link or correlation between low perfusion pressure and glaucoma. Um, the Barbados Eye Study, the Latino Eye Study, there's, you know, several others that I'm probably forgetting all show this three, four, five-fold increased risk of glaucoma with, with low perfusion pressure. And so, you know there is a complicated formula, but the simple formula is taking the dystolic, di- diastolic blood pressure minus the intraocular pressure, and so um, I think the number is anywhere between 50 or 55 um, is kind of considered maybe somebody who's at risk. And so no, I don't I don't do that on every patient, but I do have uh, you know many patients with with what appears to be normal pressure. I have. A case that I'm that I just think is really fascinating. And and I have it together, I show it in in a lecture. It's a lady who's pressure 15, 16, right? And and when I first saw her, she had a disc hemorrhage. And so uh, and she had abnormal OCTs and abnormal visual fields, and we put her on a glaucoma medication, a prostaglandin, and we followed her. A year later, I see her, and her pressures are 12. And now she's got a disc hemorrhage in both eyes. And so you know, if, if we think of glaucoma as, as a pressure disease, you know, how is it that here's this little old lady who's got pressures of 12, so low, and yet she can still have glaucomatous damage in the form of, of a disc hemorrhage, and so this is, you know, almost, you, you, you look at, well, what are other factors, and and she may be the poster child for low perfusion pressure, she's always cold, she's, she's frail, and so you know so yeah I think you look at those type of instances and 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 it's fair to you know all right what blood pressure medications are you on maybe you communicate with a primary care physician and and you know is she on a beta blocker or is she you know is her blood pressure maybe at night too low and that kind of fits that description of what we were just talking about where they've got low perfusion pressure at night and so she may be fine you know 22 hours of the day but you know two hours of the day she's got these you know, this low, low blood pressure and, and maybe a little bit higher intraocular pressure that, you know, you know which is, again, perfusion pressure. So no, I, I think it's still relevant. I just don't think we have a good standardized way of, of measuring it like we measure intraocular pressure on a patient every single time they come into our office.
0: Now, if she had very low blood pressure, it wasn't on any medication, would you consider doing things to help raise her blood pressure?
1: I wouldn't, you know, and, and, and that actually has been thrown out to, you you know, prescribe Lay's potato chips, you know, twice <laughs> a day to, you know, something high in sodium to, to get their blood pressure up, uh, you know, and, and though that may sound reasonable, I, I think, you know, the scientists, the investigators haven't gotten to that point where they would, you know, recommend doing something like that, but, but I actually did read an editorial about just that very same thing.
0: So. <laughs> One thing optometry has been missing is a unified message. That explains the importance of eye care. Now, OYE Broadcasting has solved that dilemma. We are very excited to announce the first subscription-based monthly content delivery service that will not only enhance and expand your practice, but elevate the industry. Please visit OYEBroadcasting.com and sign up today. That's OYEBroadcasting.com. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about risk factors for glaucoma. Go over some of the risk factors and you know, there's some obvious ones and some ones that aren't so obvious. So if you could talk about those.
1: Family history probably being, you know, a significant risk factor. Um, We always look at that, you know, when when a patient says, you know, my, my father went blind from glaucoma and and you're looking at a patient who's got a suspicious nerve and a borderline pressure, right? You're like, well, that probably means a lot. Um, And maybe that patient is at greater risk. Now, ideally, you would love to be able to do genetic testing to know really what that patient's genetic risk is. But, you know, I don't think in, in you know, 2021, we're at that point where we're able to make that jump. Um, you know, obviously, corneal thickness has been borne out as being a significant risk factor. So if you have a thin cornea, you know, that, that really puts you at a significantly higher risk. And so and that was, again, born out of the ocular hypertensive treatment study that was done in the 1990s. And so you know, much like checking an intraocular pressure, measuring you know, corneal thickness has become really, I think, the standard of care when you're making a decision, is it glaucoma and treating glaucoma? So, And again, for those who aren't you know, eye care providers or, or listening, when we measure the pressure with our device, it's, it's predicated on the cornea being a certain thickness, uh, an average thickness. But what happens when you have somebody who has a thinner cornea than average, or somebody whose cornea is thicker than average. And again, if this measurement that we're getting is based on an average thickness, we recognize that that may not be the true pressure. So if you have a thin cornea, you may be measuring the pressure lower, but it actually may in fact be higher than that. And likewise, a thicker corner, we may be actually, we may, we may be measuring it higher, but it may indeed be lower. So so even though we don't make that, you know, cor- we don't kind of write down what the true pressure is, we, We just look at it as a risk factor. Somebody who has a thinner cornea, we say, boy, this is, I know the pressure, what I'm measuring probably is higher than what it is, and that is a significant risk factor. And and so, you know, that being, I think, one of the, you know, obviously more significant risk factors for glaucoma. Um, Obviously, you know, the higher the pressure is, you know, the greater the risk of glaucoma. Um, The larger the the cup is a greater risk for glaucoma. Um, You know, high myopes or myopes certainly is, is a risk factor, but I don't think we... We put that at maybe the same risk factor as somebody who's got thinner corneas, for example. And,
0: and just to reference a high myope is someone who's very nearsighted. And the cornea, this for people watching that aren't in the eye care community, is the front of the eye. There's, there's a, there's I would a, say it's oh, like oh, the
1: crystal oh. on a watch, right? So we, we measure the pressure like we measure the air in a tire, but it, we measure it looking, you know, indenting the crystal on a watch. And, and again, that's based on as we just talked about an average thickness but not everybody is quote average
0: and how about hypertension you know that kind of goes back and forth but when somebody is has hypertension uh they have increased sympathetic tone that sometimes their their natural serum their corticosteroids in their in their blood actually go up in their serum uh and that could actually raise the eye pressure how do you feel you know i've been seeing patients for so long and you know, I feel that you know it also, we always talk about hypertension being related to higher intraocular pressure or increased risk of glaucoma, but quite frankly, I, I don't think it's that big of. Uh, no. I don't think it it really matters that much, to be honest. But what do you think?
1: Well, so you know, and that's of course when you you know talk to a patient about glaucoma and that their eye pressure may be too high, they automatically make that correlation between eye pressure and systemic blood pressure. So, so. But, but I would agree with you. And again, think of it, you know, the discussion we just had with perfusion pressure, right? I think if anything, higher blood pressure may be more protective because remember it, it low blood pressure affects the blood supply getting into the optic nerve. So it's really the lower blood pressure that I think is, is really more concerning than higher blood pressure. Now, again, exactly. it's all relative. We're not talking malignant hypertension where, you know, you're at sure. risk of a stroke, but but a little bit of high blood pressure, or the, the average patient who has blood pressure is a, and, and is on a blood pressure medic medication, you know, I, I again, I don't think that adds any risk. And if anything, the blood pressure maybe maybe I don't want, I hate to use the word protective, but but you know, to your point, carried probably doesn't really affect it in any way. It's not a significant risk factor, even a risk factor. I don't think.
0: You know, we talked about perfusion before. How about sleep apnea?
1: <sighs> yeah, <laughs> you know that's that has really come up. Um, over the last 10 or 15 or 20 years and 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 again sleep apnea affects so many things right and and we're just now i think scratching the surface and 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 under and even not even understanding just just recognizing that that you know sleep patterns and sleep apnea there's so many diseases whether it's central serous whether it's you know diabetes and macular degeneration but but certainly glaucoma it plays a role and and so you know i will if you know again you're looking at everything and and sometimes it's not at the top of your radar but but for the person who seems to be progressing or you're looking at normal pressures and you're not really understanding why this patient is is has glaucoma advancing I mean yeah you know do you have sleep apnea do you you know do you snore you know and 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 many patients you know especially now in this age where you know they've done sleep testing and those type of things are I think it's a little more on on people's radar so so yeah, it may be contributory, possibly is contributory. Um, I will recommend sleep studies to patients if they haven't, uh, or if they think you know they have a partner and and you know, what does your husband and wife say about your sleep patterns, et cetera? You know, you may want to, you know, get a sleep study to let's see if 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 sleep apnea is is if you have it, and then we can kind of look and, and try to decide do we think that's playing a role? But but again, it's 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 become a, a hot topic, and and I'm not really 100% familiar with any you know, direct studies that have been done, but, but it comes up over and over you know, among our colleagues that, you know, and, and glaucoma researchers where, you know, yeah, you, you've got to ask the question. And, and, and again, you maybe need to recommend sleep studies to, to patients to determine if they have sleep apnea. You
0: know, there's been studies that show up to 70% of people with migraines have an increased risk of glaucoma or elevated pressure. What do you think about that?
1: You know, I, I haven't looked too deep into that. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I, yes, I this. I guess theoretically, it's a risk factor. I just, you know, I, I it may be de- further down on the list for me. Um, you know, I, I, I typically don't. You know, I don't really explore that. You know, and that may be an area that I probably need to look at more carefully and find out. You know, certainly we have lots and lots of patients who suffer from migraine. I have family members who suffer from migraine and who don't develop glaucoma. So you just wonder, is it that, you know, because there's so many people who have it, you know, what is that cause and effect? It's like, you know, retinal vein occlusions, right? Half the people have attributed to high blood pressure and the other half isn't. So is it just that it's so common that people with high blood pressure happen to have retinal vein occlusions? Because, you know, if that's the case, and I'd explain the ones who have retinal vein occlusions and don't have high blood pressure. And I would kind of wonder the same thing about migraine headaches. So it certainly could be a, you know, attributing factor, but I'm not, I don't know too much about it.
0: People with a big belly and the metabolic syndrome tend to run high pressure, you know, you know, borderline high pressure, you know, a lot of times you'll see them in the low twenties. And, uh, you know, there's been some theories of, uh, you know, uh, inflammation cause uh, metabolic syndrome causes inflammation, 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 is a core component of chronic disease and the trabecular meshwork and have inflammation, maybe clogged the drainage a little bit, or there's some, excuse me, some, uh, sympathetic hyperactivation going on there. Do you have a feeling about, uh, metabolic syndrome and its relationship to, uh, you know, to elevated blood pressure, eye pressure?
1: I don't. Um, and, and, you know, you may well be correct in, in everything you say. I, you know, I, I think of, I'm, I get more concerned with metabolic syndrome in the context of, of patients with diabetes. Um, and, and it's really, you know, to your point, it, that combination of diabetes and metabolic syndrome really, you know, becomes a significant risk factor for cardiovascular disease and death. I mean, you can have diabetes and, you know, controlled diabetes and no metabolic syndrome and, and your risk is is very, very low, almost uh, the same risk as somebody who doesn't have diabetes. But you throw metabolic syndrome in there and diabetes, it becomes a, a formula for, you know, really catastrophe. So so metabolic syndrome is is really a, a big deal. Um, I, I haven't, as I said, I haven't explored it in glaucoma, but it would make sense just because overall body health well-being oxidative stress etc I mean it, it would make perfect sense to me but but I'm not aware of any direct relationships or correlations so
0: a lot of patients as they advance in glaucoma they have trouble reading maybe driving uh, what kind of advice can you give to these patients
1: well um, you know, it's it's a good one, right? Because um, there's no question, patients who have uh, significant visual field loss or almost any visual field loss are at greater risk of falls and accidents and, and those type of things. Um, so, again, it kind of goes back to your your kind of er, our earlier discussion regarding the number of patients who go blind and, and lose vision. Um, you know, I I I tell patients, you know. We've got 20- year data from the ocular hypertension study, right? Um, where these are patients who didn't have glaucoma that uh, were at risk. They had high pressures, they had normal fields and, and, and normal optic nerves. And one group get, got treated, one group got followed because the question was, does treatment lower the risk of progression? Um, and, and, and yes, there was a benefit of treatment, right? So but, but even those patients who, who weren't treated, you know, many of them did develop glaucoma, but but here's the long and short of that, right? So, so 20 years later, glaucoma developed in about a third of eyes, meaning two thirds of people didn't develop glaucoma. And, and so one of the conclusions was glaucoma, least in ocular hypertension, is largely, you know, unilateral. So, you know, many of them, some of them did develop it in both eyes, but, but the point was many of them only had it in one eye. So, so you know, to answer your question, Carrie. You know, glaucoma tends to be asymmetric um, patients can have significant vision loss in one eye and 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 maybe they're normal or you know not sight-threatening or life functioning vision loss but but even in those instances you know yes there, there, there is a greater risk but but I would say in terms of quality of life you know being able to recognize a face you know read and and drive right um, I, I I I try to be encouraging to patients. You know, again, you we follow you. We're going to see you twice a year, maybe three times a year. You take this drop. You know, even though there's, you know, vision loss, significant vision loss in this eye, with the other between the two eyes, this shouldn't really have much of a significant impact on the quality of your life. So, yes, I think the risk is there. Um, and and again, that may be part of the discussion on why you need to take a drop and why we need to kind of continue to watch you. Um, you know, twice a year, three times a year, depending on on you know how how severe their glaucoma is. But yeah, I mean, I I, I try to paint a picture. I mean, I, I certainly have patients where you do have to talk about um, you know severe vision loss where they're not you know they're they're really not able to drive a car. They're driving a car, but you tell them you don't meet in the state of Florida. You don't meet the Florida requirements to drive uh, to drive a car, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna have to tell you that. You shouldn't be driving. Um, you don't meet the requirements. So, so yeah, I mean, it certainly is there. I think we, you know, part of our role is, as primary eye care providers is counseling patients, helping them understand, recognizing um, you know, when there is vision loss and when it certainly could be significant where it puts patients at a higher risk.
0: Now what we found with people, you know, they still meet the criteria for driving, but the like yellow or amber tinted lenses seem to help a little bit with reading. Sometimes reverse polarity in the letters, using a white letter on a on a on a black yeah. background, yeah. sometimes helps. Of course, easy things of just magnif- magnification and things, but uh, you know it, it gets tricky because as the glaucoma progresses, even though you know, one eye, as you said, is, is asymmetric. It is kind of like a loss of, of power, so to speak. So before it starts, you could see at a, a power of 10. And as you're starting to lose some of the fibers in one eye, the power goes down, even though you could still goes down to maybe a seven or a six, but you can still pass the test so you could still drive, but you, the contrast may not be there. So sometimes these little tricks could actually help people.
1: Well, and then, and then taking a step back and looking at where the visual field defect is, whether it's a, a superior arcuate or inferior arcuate and those type of things. And so even though they may, to your point, may, might meet the, the law to be able to drive, certainly, you know, depending on where the visual field defects are can have a significant impact. And so recognizing it, and again, even having some of those discussions, showing them where they are, where they're missing vision and how that may impact you know, their ability to drive or see a stop sign or, or, you know, recognize, you know, stop lights and those type of things.
0: How about different medication that increase risk? We get a lot of questions about medication. Sometimes the patients will come and they put on a certain medication that may dilate the pupil and they'll say, can, can, I, can I take this medication? Uh, and the patients don't understand the difference between open angle glaucoma and narrow angle glaucoma. But talk about medications before we get into the types of glaucoma.
1: Well, you know the, the the main medication for me that is a risk factor, of course, is steroids, right? And 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 uh, whether it's a topical steroid in the form of an eye drop, uh, uh, a steroid that that might be an inhaler, um, less of of you know creams and ointments, but but steroids, you know, really increase a person's risk of of having increased uh, intraocular pressure and and you think of, you know, where we are today with dry eye, um, you know, it, it, it's easy to put somebody on on a, on a load of or a, or a low dose steroid. And, and certainly, I think the steroids work very well. But you, you know, these patients cannot be left, you know, to just take a drop without being seen, there needs to be oversight because of that. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the steroid is the one that, that I, I really worry most about um and and again maybe they had ophthalmic surgery or you know there's a little long list of reasons why people are on steroids um you know and then and then there are certainly some drops that can kind of dilate your pupils and those would be kind of the 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 sympathomimetics so patients that are on um you know some of the drops will dilate the pupil i'm just blanking out on on uh
0: if they're on a decongestant sometimes
1: decongestant
0: yeah those, those you know Or they're on the bladder medication. Yeah. Yeah. And they'll be sent in because they may cause the pupil to dilate a little bit. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, we, that's why you really have to know the different type of glaucoma. Let me, let me just pivot back to the steroids for a second, because that's really interesting when it comes to like people with, uh, with asthma and they're using the simicores, the flow vents, the, the inhalers and what have you found with people on inhaler inhaler steroids for asthma and glaucoma and even cataracts well
1: you,
0: you, as we just talked about
1: it it's a risk factor you know and i think it's less of a risk factor for inhalers but again in the context of somebody who comes in who may have elevated intraocular pressure you just kind of wonder what what that correlation is again you, you know in those type of patients, it, it's actually more central serous, and, and, and central serous is a is a condition that it, that affects the retina, and, and it and the whole reason people get it is because of increased levels of cortisol, um, and and if the retina, you think of like a, a ham and cheese sandwich, right? Uh, a lot of different layers what happens with when what, there's increased levels of cortisol, you can get fluid underneath the retina and that can affect the central vision. So, so there's more indirect effects from those, you know, the inhalers, the, the steroids, even a, you know, I had a, a rash and I'm using a steroid ointment, you know, anything that can increase cortisol levels in the blood can, can contribute and, and cause central serous. And I've had really many patients in that setting, whether it's through asthma, whether it's through sarcoid, where that has become more of an issue, right? They need the inhalers to be able to to survive, to be able to breathe, and so you can't stop it yet. You know, it can it can have a negative effect on 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 the eye. So, you know, I I think with with IOP, it's more as I said, nasal sprays and 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 eye drops become really a little more of a threat. I think, um, but again, it's uh, you know certainly is there, and then. You know the long-term effect, as you alluded to, carries really steroids, and and we see patients, the rheumatoid patients, the um, you know lupus patients who are on chronic steroids for medical conditions. You know they often will develop PSC cataracts, and and again, you know in the era we're in, that's not such a big deal because modern cataract surgery now is 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 you know not trivial by any means, but you know, with a good surgeon, it's eight, nine minutes an eye, there's no stitches, the eye doesn't get red, and, and the outcomes are very, very good. So, you know, we worry a little less about PSE cataracts than, than what we used to. But yeah, I, you know, the, the, the eye pressure thing is, is, is something just to be cognizant of and be aware of and, and follow patients accordingly.
0: Yeah, I think the bottom line is if you are on a nasal spray, you know, people think it's pretty innocuous, but you really need to get your eyes examined because you yep. can get cataracts. You can get glaucoma from that. You brought up central serous before. Uh, at Bascom, are you guys using spirolactone for c- central serous?
1: We are. Yeah, mm-hmm. for chronic cases, for for cases that, you know, in most patients with this condition, central serous, it, it gets better on its own. And just, again, for those that are that are not you know, eye care providers are familiar. It's more common in males that 30 to 50 tends to be type A. Um, and, and, and again, people who, who don't deal with stress well, your body tends to create more cortisol. Um, and, and you, know, you know, when we have that discussion, just the fact that they have stress, or you ask them about stress, they get stressed about it, right? That's kind of the nature of, of these type A people. But in most people, it does get better. In, in many patients, it doesn't. So you look at how do you treat it if it's not going to get better. Sometimes if you can identify where a leak is, you can laser it. Sometimes we, we still do photodynamic therapy, which is, again, a kind of a cold laser treatment. But spironolactone, which is a, a high blood pressure medication, we, 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 we will use on patients, again, who are more recalcitrant, aren't getting better. And it, and it seems to work pretty well.
0: Yeah, I've had a couple of patients that the central serous was chronic, and we use spironolactone, and we've actually had some good success. Yeah, so yep. that's why I bring it up. Uh, so let's talk about the different types of glaucoma. Let's start with open angle glaucoma.
1: Yeah, so you know, and that's a hard thing to you know to help patients really understand it. And I always kind of use the the water faucet sink drainage analogy, right? That there's a a fluid that, that gets produced in your eye and, and, it, and, and there's a drain and it drains out at a, in the normal circumstance, it drains out at essentially the, the same rate that it gets produced. So this equilibrium is produced, right? There's a range of pressure, but the pressures is, 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 is normal, quote normal uh, for them. We don't see optic nerve damage, visual function is, is not affected. And so what can happen if maybe the drain gets a little clogged or maybe the drain is working okay, but the fluid, the aqueous is being produced faster than it can drain out. And, and, and in that circumstance, the eye pressure can go up. And, and again, whether we think it's just direct eye pressure or is it this correlation between cerebral spinal fluid pressure, perfusion pressure, whatever the case may be, damage is done to the optic nerve. And so um, we can treat these with eye drops and there's many different types of eye drops now. and and essentially what they do is they will facilitate, increase the outflow, or they may make it so like a beta blocker, so you're not producing the aqueous or the fluid fast enough. So again, you're able to kind of keep and maintain that pressure. And so that's kind of traditional garden variety, primary open angle glaucoma. And, and in this country and you know the United States and Europe, that's probably the most common form of, of glaucoma you know there is. But, but that's not the case around the world in, in some of the Asian uh, uh, countries, Angolia etc, just because of anatomy in the shape of their eye, um, that drain may be inherently narrowed. so so the fluid may not drain it may not be allowed to drain you know normally. And so you know you talked about carry things that cause the pupil to, to dilate, whether it's just you know, going into a dark room, or you're watching a movie, or you're driving at night, we know that the pupil will will change shape based on lighting circumstances. So, so if you have an individual who, an Asian who's maybe their corneas are a little bit flatter, or they're just you know the shape of their eye is uniquely different, they are prone to developing a type of glaucoma called angle closure, and where the the drainage angle becomes a little bit crowded again because of the shape of the eye. So you look at factors like aging where the natural lens tends to thicken you look at dynamics of the pupil that we just talked about and interestingly in 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 those countries it's angle closure is the number one cause of glaucoma and not primary open angle glaucoma and and, and again we you know we see it here in the United States we just we just don't really see it like they see it in other places around the world which is you know quite interesting
0: to me and so well. Go ahead. So, so open angle glaucoma, the fluid is is draining through the eye, bathing the eye, and there's no, and there's there's a clear path for the fluid to get out, but there's yeah. a defect in the drain for whatever the reason. When we're talking about chronic angle closure or angle closure the iris somehow is blocking where the fluid is trying trying to come out so and then the treatment would be different uh for these two so if you could talk about how the treatment may be different for the chronic angle closure and the angle closure type as opposed to the we we establish open angle generally we're going to start with drops but with the chronic angle closure we may have a different way of treating if you could explain that
1: well, there's so correct, right? So you talked about the iris being bowed forward. Um, so the, 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 the fluid is produced kind of behind the iris, you know, between the lens and the iris, and it, and it goes through your pupil. And so if you have, you know, because of genetic variant, your lens begins to thicken. So what, what we'll sometimes do is we'll do a laser, we'll put a little hole uh, in the iris, and that allows kind of the iris to come back, and it kind of maintains that fluid is able to drain out, it's able to maintain that kind of homeostasis, if you will. And so interestingly, that's become kind of the treatment of choice for for either narrowed angles or patients who have chronic angle closure glaucoma, you put a little hole in the iris, and that kind of allows the iris to come back and and an equilibrium is is maintained. Um, You know, that works if you're able to catch that patient early before they've developed, because Because over time, if that doesn't get recognized, you can get scarring in the angle. And and even if you do a laser, you know, once you've developed scarring, that's really not going to work. And so interestingly, you know, what we're, you know, maybe thinking about or discovering that even laser doesn't always work well in, in many patients. So as it turns out, cataract surgery, excuse me, cataract surgery really may be a better option if you take the, the cataract lens out and put a lens implant, that may be probably the best definitive treatment for either narrow angles or, 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 or angle closure or chronic angle closure. Uh, and again, that's still, you know, kind of being researched and being embraced. Um, you know, it's not widespread done because a laser is certainly easier to do. And I think we're we're doing more laser peripheral iridotomies or iridectomies than we are cataract surgery, but but that's really being looked at as, as an option.
0: Right. And with a, with a young person uh, that doesn't have a cataract, obviously, you know, that's not a cataract surgery is really not an option at that, at that point. Well, well,
1: but that really becomes the question, you know, if this turns out to be a better treatment than a laser, um, that's being looked at. Maybe cataract surgery is still a better option, clear lens extraction. But you're right. That's where it gets kind of tricky. Yes, if you have a cataract, then it, then it makes sense. Um,
0: Even in a 20 or 30-year-old, and then you'll, they lose their accommodation, it's it wouldn't well, be just to put the hole in?
1: Well, you, you don't see many 20 or 30-year-olds have that narrow angles that need laser peripheral iridotomies. It's usually that 50, 60-year-old, right, where you maybe have a little lens change. I, I think we can identify n- narrow angles you know, in, in those patients who are younger, but Typically, you know, they're not narrow enough where, where they're going to need to do a, a laser peripheral iridotomy. So
0: that's a, that's a good point. I just said last week I had a, a young Asian American female who was in her early 30s that needed uh, uh, that had chronic angle closure that needed an iridotomy. So maybe that was top of mind. Yeah. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat.
1: Es natural y es un buen producto.
0: Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you.